welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today we're joined with Dr. Sanjo Assam, research scientist and director of Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. In this episode, we get into bioenergenetics, the nonprofit he has built, Blue Marble Space Institute, his nonlinear path to astrobiology, why and where he travels, such as New Zealand, book recommendations, the research projects he's working on to get a better understanding of ancient nitrogen levels through bacteria, and more. So let's get into this. When you're talking to other fellow astrobiologists, what are the things that you're just like, oh, wow, that's fantastic, and you just kind of like get into it and kind of nerd out about it? What are some of the things that inspire you? For me, is whenever there is a new way of reading rocks. So rocks are the history book of the Earth, and it's actually hold a lot of information. It's just trapped in the knowledge of science. Scientists have been you know, learning how to read rocks for over you know, several centuries, but we're still making progress on how to extract information from stone. And so what gets me excited is when, when scientists find a new way of extracting some information about the rock. So rocks, you know, contain information in the environment they were formed in. So can you use rocks to measure air pressure? Can you use rocks to measure and other environmental conditions? And uh, whenever somebody finds a new way of doing that, uh, it's like, whoa, that's, that's so clever. That's super cool. Recently, have there ever been any new ways that gotten you that excitement? Uh, yeah, actually, this is one method that my students and I have been, have been working on and some colleagues is to use fossils of bacteria as a means of measuring the uh, content of nitrogen, so which is the most common gas in the air, way back when, you know, several billion was a B years ago. It's, it's, it's promising. It's looking like it, it, it may just work. So what would that help us see about the ancient world? No, like being able to measure nitrogen in an accurate way, like versus what we have today without it. Well, for one is to understand that an environment that's completely different than modern Earth can sustain life, which is important. I'm sure you've heard of NASA and the Kepler Space Telescope discovering planets that are orbiting stars that are not our sun, that are, you know, light years and light years away, which we will never be able to go physically with a spacecraft or a lander or whatsoever. And so uh, and then the, the way we're going ident- to identify whether or not these planets are alive will be by measuring what's in the air using remote remote sensing techniques. But we only know of one planet that's alive, and that's the modern Earth. And so when your your database of known inhabited worlds is one, well, you need to find ways to improve that database. And so looking at the ancient Earth is, is, is the best way to do it, because it was a very different planet, and yet it was very much alive. So getting at to how much nitrogen content was in the ancient Earth is a way to getting at what was in the air, and can we detect that elsewhere? That makes sense. Is there... Looking at our solar system, because I, I would imagine we have a better sense of what's going on in our solar system than other solar, solar systems at this time. Are there any moons or, or planets that are like, if you had to put your money on it, that you're like, there's there's probably something living there. Yeah, so from a very Earth-centric perspective, you're looking for solvent like water, you're looking at for building blocks like carbon, and you're looking for a source of energy like heat or chemical energy. The two that pop, to, pop up to mind are the icy worlds, Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, which has the ice shell around it, and a much smaller version around the orbit of Saturn, which is called Enceladus. Both have geysers, which means there are energy coming out of the moon, 
both have liquid water, both have organic material that's been detected. Whether or not that's a, that's a signature of life, of course, we do not know. That would be a place to start. Titan is exciting, but it is bloody cold there. If we are to detect life, we're going to find life that's similar to ours. And so if it's if it if there is a life form on Titan, it moves so slowly because it's so cold. I'm not convinced we could actually detect it because we'll be there for a very short amount of time. That's interesting. What if there? Now I'm picturing like a giant whale-like creature that just kind of slugs along and we don't see it. And we're like standing <laughs> on top of it the entire time. And perhaps for, for, from the perspective of these beings, we're like, you know, butterflies. <laughs> and yeah. then off we go. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be very cognizant, uh, really think well about not confining our search for life to life that we know of exists, right? And that's hard. Because <laughs> you're a lover of rocks. Is there any planet and or moon that you haven't been able to see the rocks of it. As a geologist, you want to look for a planet that has some activity on it. The moon is really interesting geologically, but for me, that's interested in the environment that could potentially host life. It's kind of a lot of the same on the moon, right? Whereas in a place like Mars, you see activity of rivers that are long gone, but you can see that in the rocks, that there was a river there, that there was, you know, deposits of sand, that there was from the size of the pebbles that you find on Mars, you can say something about depth and water strength, you know? So you want to look for rocks in a planet that's that's dynamic. And uh, the closest we have to Earth would be Mars in terms of its how dynamic it was in the past and you can recognize um, events from it. So yours would be Mars? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the rocks would be cool, don't get me wrong. I mean, to, to have a sample of the surface of Venus would be incredible because it's such a different world and you can probably find a lot of information on, from those rocks. But in terms of the diversity of environments that we're likely to encounter, Mars is probably the best bet. Isn't Venus kind of liquidy? Is it so hot? No, no. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a desert, right? It's, it's, so, it's, it's really hot. In fact, it's the planetary surface, which is the warmest in our solar system. But that's because of all the carbon dioxide, essentially greenhouse gas that's all in the atmosphere. So it has Venus and Earth have about the same amount of CO2, uh, that is carbon dioxide, that greenhouse gas, but on Earth it's all locked up as rocks and uh, underground, whereas on Venus it's all been pumped out by volcanoes. So it's, all of it is in the atmosphere, so it's just really hot, but it's not liquidy, no. In fact, quite the opposite, it's dry. <laughs> I, I meant liquid in the sense that like like magma, because I, I, maybe this was a really long time ago, but like I think people thought that because it was so hot that it would be kind of like rivers of magma and stuff. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought it was like that. I think what you're remembering is 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 that Venus does not have the same way that Earth does in terms of dissipating its heat. So we have plate tectonics. As you know, all the different plates move relative to each other. And the reason they move is because they're lubricated by water. As soon as you remove all the water from the Earth, all those plates will lock, right? And so that's what happened on Venus. All the plates locked. So there was no way of dissipating that heat. Sure, volcanoes dissipate that heat a little bit, but not as efficiently as other mechanisms. So what happened on Venus is that heat kind of accumulated and then blah, the whole surface surface kind of overturned. So you had you had for a short amount of time, short geologically speaking, like an ocean of lava that then that then solidified. I honestly did not know that tectonics were like moved around by liquid. I thought it was just kinda of like the earth moving a lot. I didn't know that yeah, that's neat. I didn't I learned something new today. How did we figure that out? Like, how did someone know that it was liquid-based versus just kind of, some I don't know, anything else that it could have been? Well, it couldn't be anything else, right? I mean, physics and chemistry of a planet tells us there are certain ways a planet can release its, its heat. And the way a scientist dates the surface of a planetary body is by the density of craters, right? The more craters you have on a planetary body of different sizes, and the size distribution is, is, is important, there are ways to translate that into age. 
Uh, so the more craters you have in a, in a certain purse per amount of surface area, the older the surface is, right? And they were looking at that on the surface of Venus, and they were like, wow, for a planet that's dead, it's surprisingly young. How come? And from there, you look at the, again at the evidence, you see lava flows on Venus and everything, and you start putting the pieces together. Like, oh, that's, that's most likely what happened. Now, you can never be sure 100%, you know, in science, um, but you talk about high probability versus low probability. That's always one of the key things I, when someone's like, science proves, you know, whatever, I was like, nope, science supports, like the data supports whatever the hypothesis. So that's one of the first things I look for to make sure there's not any like weird magic-y stuff going on where it's not really science. And that's the beauty of science, right? You can, you can, that's how it progresses, that's how it progresses that, you know, you're a scientist and you, you discover something cool and you write about it and based on your hypothesis and all your data, it says X. Right. But somebody else comes in with another idea, another perspective, a different data. Like, well, it's not quite right. It's probably why. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Like you built on my work and maybe I was wrong in my conclusions, but it got the thought process moving such that the right answer will will, it will find itself eventually. Scientific method in and of itself is kind of a cool innovation that we relatively knew. Right. Like I think it's only like 500 years old. Right. It's like the like. No, maybe 200 years old. It's not like we haven't had it like the, for thousands of years is what I mean. I mean, the Greeks had a good way of thinking about, about science as well. Um, I think the formalism of a false falsifiable hypothesis, that's Karl Popper. This is um, tens of years ago. But the kind of intuitively how to solve a problem, I think we've, we've, humans have had it for since they've been around. I mean, the agricultural revolution was you know, 70,000 years ago. That's when humans figured out that planting stuff would you know help in getting higher yields. Um, that's all deductions happening in the brain without necessarily a formalism, but I think it's a lot of intuition that, that we've had as humans for, for you know, for thousands, if not tens of thousands. I always like when I when I think of history and I guess you have you have probably a much longer view of history since you like rocks and like they have a much bigger one. But the one that I always like is that Cleopatra, like the, the lady that was around Julius Caesar's time, she was closer to modern day than she was to the making of the pyramid when she was like one of the like people of Egypt. And I think that's just like a crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. And another way, another one like that is that there is more time, more time has passed between the first and last dinosaur than the last dinosaur and us, right? Same idea in terms of, of time scales and it kind of blows your mind a bit. Are there any good movies or books or like modern stuff that handles astrobiology and what science is like in an accurate way or like they're good, accurate shows or anything like that that you're like, hey, you like science, check this out. It's pretty accurate. Yes. I mean, of course, there are, there's a lot of good books. Um, the best ones for astrobiology in terms of engaging inspiration is all the works by Carl Sagan, Cosmos and Pale Blue Dot and so on. Yeah, those, those are the ones that come to mind. Um, in fact, I still find myself reading a chapter here and there even today, even though I first read them, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, Peter Ward has written several good books on astrobiology. Life and Death of Planet Earth is a good one because it traces the Earth from the early days to today and kind of try and speculate what will happen to the planet in the several billion years from now as the sun becomes slowly brighter. Uh, so that's kind of a fun one. And um, there are others for sure. I might have to send you an email with <laughs> a longer list. <laughs> that's fair. Carl Sagan is kind of a fun person. He shows up in the background of science a lot. There'll be like something going on. And he just kind of like pops in and answers a question and then he goes back. I, don't, I, I read a lot about like history and like how things come together. And it's always, he like just pops up a lot. He's an, he's an innovator in the way he thinks and how he gets people excited to think about science. Another good book that just came to mind is Life on a Young Planet by Andy Knoll. Not a good one. What about any like, have you seen Martian or Interstellar? Like, do they capture? I think Martian and Interstellar are, are, are great movies um, from a 
there are a few hiccups in the science, but that's not really important in, to convey the, the excitement of what, what could potentially happen to humans uh, in, the, in, the, in the future. Martian, you know, we will we will land on Mars eventually in the coming decades. Uh, hopefully we won't have such a harrowing experience as Matt Damon had. Yeah, learning how to live completely cut off from the rest of the world is hard. I mean, many of us have a hard time living without, you know, our cell phone in our pocket. Can you imagine being completely detached from anything and you have to rely on what you have around you to survive? That's a very different way of thinking that we'll have to adapt to if we are to explore space sustainably. Now, we can do it temporarily by spending a lot of money short term. But that's not really where we want to see humanity go, right? We kind of want a permanent move to solar system and beyond. One thing that always kind of gets me, but I think it's really cool when it comes to time, is that we, the Wright brothers, from the Wright brothers to land on the moon, there was only like 40 years, right? or 40 or 50 years. Like there was like a, like going from like everyone thinking, no, you can't fly, <laughs> to like being on another plat, like another astral body. Like I think that's just fantastic. And then, so it just makes me think, like, what will be next? Like, what, what will be around, like, 50 years from now? Are we living like... It's fun to think about. Who knows? It's, I'm always surprised by where humanity takes itself. Has anything surprised you in that astrobiology field since we first got out of college versus now? Yeah, I think the biggest innovations that I've seen come out is really in the abundance of exoplanets. So, sure, I mean, there were, the first exoplanet was discovered in 1995, you know, number one, and I finished school like eight years ago and there was just a bunch of exoplanets out there but now we're in the thousands you know of planets that are orbiting other stars that are not our sun and we're finding planets that are almost the size of earth orbiting almost at the right distance from from the star that if water was on the surface it could be liquid you know so it's it's just the diversity of worlds that are out there is mind-blowing i'm not even sure we have a full grasp on it every kind of scenario you can think of exists in an exoplanet it's, it's wild. With all the stuff that we're getting, has it been consistent with the Drake's equation? Or, like, was that guy, like, was it close? Or, or was it far off? Because I hear about that all the time. There are still so many terms in the, in the, uh, in the Drake equations that we have no idea how to, uh, how to answer, right? And because it's a, it's a multiplication of terms, each term is important. And I think one of the main ones is L, the longevity of a civilization. Who knows? <laughs> So there's a large error bars on, on the Drake equation, and the value of the Drake equation is it helps you think about what might be important for uh, intelligent life. There was a, a good book where the people, there was like a, they went to a moon, and like the, the, like the alien creatures like shot them into the future using like faster than light technology, because you're going fast, like as fast as light, everything else kind of slows down. So they brought them to basically like a place where there's a bunch of other alien civilizations that were also transported there. And so humanity originally like died out because like it was so long. And the idea is that like societies would like grow and then fall. So these aliens basically like collected all, all these people and accelerated them to, like close to the speed of light. So they'd all arrive in this area, even though they started at different times so that they'd all kind of meet. It's kind of a fun Whoa. idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to realize that everyone died. And, like, oh man, I hope warp drive is a thing. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I, th- cool. I think I saw a headline or something where someone put out information about the warp drive. I didn't read it, but I saw the headline. I was like, oh, I should probably uh, There's a lot of shitty headlines out there. Yeah. So no, don't base your news on headlines. Yeah, it was like it was one of my, like one of my, hey, I should look into that more. It keeps showing up. If I see something yeah. like more than like five times after. So. Yeah, sorry. And sorry about swearing. It, it, <laughs> it, it annoys me the quantity of bad reporting with regards to science that's out there just for the benefit of, you know, advertising clicks. Um, so we have to just be conscious, you know, as 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 humans. But there's all this information online, you know, it's we have to learn how to 
filter information for what's really important. It's so easy to go, oh, look at that title. I'm going to get fired up about it. You know, and it's a very nat- natural human thing to do. But let's let's be aware of the people that are trying to manipulate us through those headlines. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's that's why I kind of always look for like, oh, science proves or yeah, I, I, I don't solely based on headlines, but it's like, hey, is there something going on there? Makes me like question it. So is there, there is there That's, any yeah, is there anything cool going on in that arena? I mean, advanced space propulsion is an active area of research, and uh, people are f- trying to figure out how to use less and less fuel um, to get more as much momentum as possible. And um, there are some technologies that are being unveiled not to get off of a planet because the gravity is really hard, but once you are in space, you can throw small amounts of stuff for a very long time and then you'll accelerate <laughs> at really really high speed um or you, do, you don't even know need an engine if you use uh the solar wind as your as your wind and you have a kind of a space sail yeah. so there's a lot of technologies that are being developed out there nothing in this in the area of going faster than the speed of light isn't that what we did with horizon i believe where it like kind of puts out a little bit at a time and it was like the the weight of like a piece of paper on your on your hand and but it like it accelerated up and it's really fast i think it was horizon. yeah it's called that's right. Well, the first spacecraft to have that is called Deep Space One. Um, it's, and the propulsion system you're talking about is called an ion engine. So it accelerates ions. It throws ions in the back, which is nothing. But integrated over, you know, um, months and years, you end up accumulating a lot of energy. Which is awesome. The, um, which is awesome. <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. The, so what, what, what drew you to astrobiology and geology in particular? What when you were a boy, it's like you get struck by a rock and then you started looking at it and get excited. I don't know. It's actually a very nonlinear path that got me to it. Um, I was always interested about space. When I was a kid, um, I read all the astronomy books that, you know, fell into my lap. I learned a lot about planets and there was a local astronomy club in my village. And uh, I think I was the youngest member there and saw Jupiter for the first time through a telescope and was just kind of mesmerized. So it was, space, you know, is something I was passionate always. But what direction of space? I had no idea. But I always enjoyed tinkering, so I, I started my university career in engineering. So I uh, got a bachelor's and a master's in, in aerospace engineering, funny enough. And then as while working on this, on the master's, that um, I took a class just for the fun of it on the atmospheres of planets. And the professor for that class was a professor also of astrobiology. And I was kind of mesmerized about the topic. And uh, I had to write a paper for that class, as you do in school. And the paper was water on Mars and potential implications for life. And I found myself really researching a lot on this paper and kind of ignoring the engineering classes. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is telling me something. So I kind of had a quarter life crisis. It's like, oh my God, do I really want to be an engineer now? I'm really now passionate about this field of astrobiology and the thoughts, the possibilities of life elsewhere. It's really cool to think about what would be the implications for humans if life were detected elsewhere. And so I kind of had to swallow my pride and, you know, finish the master's and then start graduate school all over again in earth science and astrobiology. And uh, it's probably one of the best decisions I've made, you know, uh, just not going the safe route of following the trajectory I was I launched myself on, but you know, doing a course correction while still in school, even after six years of school, um, to, to, to redirect. And um, it worked out in my favor. I'm really happy in my professional life right now. I think it's interesting sometimes, especially people my age, where they feel like there's like some thing they're running towards, like they have to get the PhD but like, you know, by the time they're twenty six and do X, Y, and Z by the thirty. It's like I don't we live for like eighty years. Like you do the right, you know, find what you want to be doing, and then do that. Like, even if it takes some time, like, I think it's, but we all beat at the rhythm of our own drum. Yeah, that's, that's a much better way of saying it. But so you said you grew up in a village. So where are you from? Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. Oh. Can't you tell? Brown skin and my name called Sanjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs> no, I was just like, I, was, I didn't know they called villages villages. So I was just yeah. thinking, do they call, 
Oh, did you go to uh, Zurich where Einstein used to study? No, I, uh, my hometown is near the city of Geneva, which is in the other side of the country. Yeah, it's a very tiny country. Though. You get a walk. <laughs> it's a different language. <laughs> Spoken a different language, different culture, different everything. I don't know a lot about Switzerland. So you'll see my ignorance with this question, but like, there's a lot That's of there's a lot of diversity there. I thought it was kind of more homogenous. No, no, four four different national languages. You know, two major different religions. Um, each state has its own quirks. Um, it's a surprisingly diverse place. What are all the languages that can speak? It's easy to answer. It's German, French, Italian, and a language called Romanche, which is a kind of a mixture of the other three. That's pretty cool. So Zurich, Zurich is in the German part, and Geneva is in the French-speaking part. Have you ever wanted to visit a place that, like, a person like Einstein or Carl Sagan used to work at? Just what motivates most of my travels is ancient civilizations. So uh, whenever there's a place that has ancient civilization, I have tried to go there. So you know, been to Cambodia to see the Angkor, Angkor civilization, Mexico for the for the Aztecs and Mayas in Guatemala and uh, Incas in Peru, and uh, of course in e- Egypt, it was an incredible civilization they had there. Uh, New Zealand for the Maori, you know, this it's it's you have a lot to learn from ancient civilizations and trying to wrap my brain around all of this, and it's just a lot of wisdom that's not been transmitted to a to the 21st century Earth, and that's too bad. <laughs> Especially in America, the Native American uh, cultures are not really covered. Like in my college, they, they had one Native American, like it was going to be like everything about all of the Americas and the Native Indigenous populations. And I was like one of the six people who signed up for it, but there wasn't enough to like carry it through, so they dropped it. it I agree. Like the beauty in humanity lies in its diversity, and too many people are afraid of, of people that are different. Well, I, I feel that engaging diversity is a way to learn more about your own culture. It gives you a new perspective on your own thoughts or where your own kind of cultural heritage comes from. So, uh, I, you know, I would encourage everybody to put on a backpack and, and go explore. It's a beautiful planet. One of the cool things I like is that, like, the Aztecs had basically like, hot tubs when Europe was having the bubonic plague problems. And, like, not like hot tubs, but they had, like, running water where they'd have, like, these aqueducts. Then they'd, like, pull into it. I call them hot tubs, but not hot tubs. In, in essence, they would, like, bathe and be hygienic, where, like, Europe was, like, dying because they didn't have good bathing practices. Well, even even in Europe before, the Romans had a very intricate network of, of uh, a bathhouse. So, yeah, I mean, civilizations rise and fall, you know, and that might befall us as well. So let's be conscious about history. I, I don't want to get distracted, but the, it's something I think about. <laughs> I, too, want to, like, travel the world, especially New Zealand, because they have Hobbiton. Like, I know that's not, like, an ancient civilization, but it interests me all the same. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, it's cool to see Mount Doom in its natural state. <laughs> are there good books for learning more about the world? Like, if, you know, like some people, like they're stuck in an office for a little bit or like they're not able to travel. Like, what are some good primer books you'd recommend for them to learn more about these places? So when they are able to travel, they could be like, oh, I'm going to go check out New Zealand because the Mori sound really awesome. And there's seafarers, I think. I think they did wayfinding. It. A good book that I read recently that was that was quite nice is um sapiens by yunel harari i'm sure you've read it as well kind of tracing the history of humanity and how you know how um behavioral changes may be may be attributed to historical uh events well i always think like it's kind of crazy that there's like a lot of different human populations like different types of humans and now there's only one and so i always think like why aren't there more of them well you know humans are very good at fighting people they don't recognize that look different I speak a different language or believe in, uh, in other things. And so I think it's just a natural consequence of that kind of belief that I hope, you know, now that we're conscious of what we've been doing as a species over the eons, we can fight back against it. Use reason to fight against uh, emotion, if that's even possible. 
I think I think about like you could get like thirty percent of the population. <laughs> you could get like thirty percent who would be like reasonable about it, depending on the situation. But that's better. I think like at one point in time it was probably like one percent. You'd have like that one smart lady or woman who's like, guys, don't do this and like they just get clubbed over the head. But like nowadays, you got a little bit of insulation and the internet, so you can kinda like, you know, spread your word a little better. Sure. And I don't mean like ignoring your emotional urges. Emotional or emotional urges and emotional response is really important is knowing how to respond to your emotions. That's that's the key. How to you know, oh you're upset, but how do you harness being upset for to make a uh, a decision that's intelligent as opposed to just blah or acting on your urges. So how do you handle emotions? It's actually a skill that's not taught in school and I wish I was. Uh, another thing that was kind of like on your profile was something called bioenergetics. And I was kind of curious, like, how does that play into your interest? Oh, so bi- bioenergetics is essentially, so I, I remember I was mentioning that life needs a few hands full of things. It needs building blocks, it needs energy, it needs a solvent. So bioenergetics is what what energy can biology harness to live? So if you look around you right now, uh, all the light that you see ultimately depends on light. But not all life depends on light. You can find bacteria and viruses and other types of microorganisms are really, really small. You can't see them that depend on the energy, on the chemical energy that's made available by water reacting and dissolving rock. And that's it. And that's not unique to Earth, right? Water and rock are found elsewhere in the solar system. And so by by studying that chemical energy um, on Earth, you can make some intelligent assessments of where might be environments that could host life. Now, environments that could host life does not mean that they actually host life. It would be a good place to start looking. So bioenergetics means is what can you use in the environment to infer an energy that biology could harness. So hot springs, hot springs, for example, is a good example. So if you go to Yellowstone and other places like this, where you have this hot water that's reacting with, that's dissolving rock, and you have all these these chemicals inside the water, the, the bacteria that live in the springs harness what's dissolved in the water to live that's how they get their energy it's chemical energy it's not energy that's coming from the sun so uh, looking at uh, the the chemistry of, of the water in hot springs is uh, insightful in thinking about where to look for life elsewhere but what are some of the things you're working on today i know you mentioned that you're working on a way to detect nitrogen but are there other cool things that you're working on uh, yeah, so I have two parallel um, work topics, one of which is trying to figure out ways to use rocks as a barometer. So how can you use rocks to measure air pressure? And thought of different ways and a few other ideas in, in the works. Uh, the one that my student uh, and I pioneered is using bacteria, the fossils of bacteria to see if they have recorded information. And on the other, um, other another p- branch of my uh, stuff I do is to look uh, at a... Uh, reaction called serpentinization and it's a it's a lot of words but essentially serpentine is the the state mineral of california and uh if you you drive on route one along the coast here it's you can see it in road cuts kind of this greenish greenish rock rock. and the reason it's interesting for astrobiology is because it requires a very benign mineral called olivine which is definitely not unique to earth and water which is not unique to earth to react to form the serpentine. And what's exciting is that byproduct of this geochemical reaction is the production of hydrogen. And hydrogen is this fundamental food source for biology. So the fact, and serpentine has been detected on Mars, so it's pretty exciting that there is an environment that could potentially give out energy just from rocks and water, give out that energy for biology to use. So those are the two main uh, areas of work that I undertake these days. When will it... 
if you think of it like kind of like a journey of A to Z, like how far along are you in developing either one? The journey in science is never linear. You could be, you might think that you're almost to the end and then you hit a wall and then you have to go 90 degrees in one direction for 10 miles before you can come back. So it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, it's, it's never going to reach Z, I'm pretty certain. Well, well, I feel like eventually it'll be done, hopefully. You have to get to Z eventually, right? Sure. I mean, we, there, you can, you can say a lot of good information if you're 90% there, right? But getting an absolute answer um, is 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 just not the way science works, right? You'll you'll get close to it, you'll gain insights, but you know somebody else might come in from a, with a brand new perspective that you didn't remotely think about, and that's the awesome part of of the discipline. So, like saying that you can point your finger, this is where I'm going. It's a very naive way to do science because you'll do your best to keep a straight line, but <laughs> uh, science has a way of, of completely derailing you in one direction or another. And your interests change and you kind of, as a curious humans, you follow your nose into a tangent and off you go. So, yeah, it helps when a lot of people are working on this topic. So there's a, a group at the University of Colorado called Rock Powered Life, RPL. And uh, they it's a group of scientists who are passionate about investigating how rocks can power life. So they come at it from a bunch of different perspectives, looking at different sites around the world to gain insights and to help NASA uh, think about the possibility of rocks powering life beyond Earth. I think you you also run a nonprofit, right? Yes, it's a nonprofit called Blue Marble Space, which is a science and science uh, outreach uh, nonprofit. So there's a third branch. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, so I was, as I think I mentioned in the beginning of, of, of your interviews, I've always been really passionate about public outreach, and I really wanted that uh, embedded in my career. And a typical um, academic paths that followed having a PhD uh, didn't really encompass that in a way that was, that was satisfying to me. And so uh, with a friend who shared some similar passion, we, we, we launched an institute of science who has outreach and science excellency at the same kind of the fabric of the two permeate each other in the philosophy of their organization. So the scientists we bring into the organization also have this passion of not doing really cool science, but communicating the science to the public. That has been a very rewarding way to make a living. It's not easy, but because um, I've juggled between running a company and doing my own science. But I think my brain works better that way than being focused on one question only, you know, 24-7. So what are some of the cool things that have come out of that? Uh, for, so for one is this new Institute of Science that brings people who are, have the same passion as I do about communicating their science. And we kind of treat it also as an incubator for ideas. So when our, when our scientists want to pursue something that's not particularly involved in science, we provide some support to do that. So one output of that has been uh, SciWorthy.com, which is our news site. So it's uh, scientific news that's uh, translated for the general public by scientists and graduate students. So we try to be really uh, rigorous in the way we, we explain the science. Um, we also have a, uh, a science social network called Saganet.org, after Carl Sagan, of course. And uh, we started uh, branching out into uh, into sustainable farming. So we have a, a division of, of our nonprofit called GrowGreenSpace.org, where we are learning how to grow food indoors um, to teach not only sustainability but also you know bring in some funds to kind of help grow the the enterprise. So it's not only a business to sell food, but also how can we sell food in a way that we can close the energy loops and eventually think about growing food in space, you know, when we, you don't have this abundance of water, abundance of energy. And so uh, we try to do, be socially good with an eye on, uh, on, on thinking about the longevity of the human species beyond our planet. If for someone who is listening and is like, hey, astrobiology and minerals sounds interesting to me, how would you advise them to proceed? And then the second part is, how can people learn more and follow along as well? 
two-parter. Let's see. So the, in terms of how, if people are excited about, about rocks and life, so the NASA Astrobiology Program, if you, if you Google them, has newsletters that you can sign up on to follow the news. You can also sign up to, to our newsletter to see what we're doing within our own community to advance those fields. And uh, social media is a great way to get information from sources you trust. So uh, NASA is very good at social media and they have a, a good good feed going on. Ours is not bad either at Blue Marble Space. Um, a lot of fun information about science and astrobiology. And again, Wikipedia, believe it or not, is, is a good source of information and it's very easy to navigate between topics. So start on one particular topic. For example, just Google astrobiology on Wikipedia and then follow your notes, follow the links and uh, guaranteed you'll come up with, with good stuff to, to keep you entertained. Which is funny because when I was in college, I was told to stay away from Wikipedia, though I used it anyway. <laughs> but it's good to it's good to know like other other um, PhD people know that it, it's a valuable resource. It, it 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 is. There's a lot of good stuff in Wikipedia, and of course, if you want to if you want to use it to make a contribution to science, you're gonna you want to double check your sources. But as a first easy stab to get good information, Wikipedia is, is definitely a to go place. What are the newsletters or places that you go to specifically? Are, are there if it's not divergent from what you recommended, then uh, we can skip it. But like, are there any other like specialized things that you pay attention to and like have newsletters of or I guess I'm uh, kind of boring I go to news.google.com and then have a filter for science and um and see what pops up I pay attention not only to the headline but where that headline is coming from to get to guide where um where I go look but yeah social media I think is I think Twitter is actually where I get a lot of my the, the latest science news yeah that's uh, been highly recommended to me Twitter is like where the scientists are hanging out. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, good conversations happening there. The American Geophysical Union um, gives has a great feed for all stuff, earth science, um, ranging from, you know, I mean, geology is a very broad discipline. So from plants in ice environments, like what Heidi is looking at in, in high altitude environments, to marine dynamics, uh, it's a the more you look at Earth, the more amazed you are by how it works. It's just an incredible planet. And uh, AGU does a good job at feeding out some of those, uh, the, the new science coming out of that. Is there anything that gives you hope? Anything that makes you think, science is doing something neat, and I'd like people to know more about this? Any hopefulness? Because like in the news, you hear about negative. Well, that's, that's what makes news news, right? You don't, <laughs> yeah. you, don't find, go, you don't go look news to find positive stuff, because that doesn't generate advertisement. That's a different rant. Um, humans are incredibly adaptable. So climate change is going to happen and sea level is going to rise, but we will find a way to make the best of it. So the biggest hope for the future is that we are incredibly, very adaptable. Um, my hope is that policymakers that set the planet in a particular direction pay more attention to what's coming out from consensus science. Not saying that science has all the answers. And again, politics is yes or no, 100% sure or not, whereas science is highly likely and not likely. There's a communication gap that needs to be overcome. And I'm really hoping, I'm hopeful that the, these two bodies that have very different goals, the politicians and the scientists, find a way to communicate in a way that they can respect and understand each other in ways to guide the spaceship Earth that we're on on a, on a correct course. Um, we definitely are going to see some some damage from our past actions in regards to climate. But the adaptability of humans, and also from my own personal experience traveling the world, Humans are fundamentally good people, right? I mean, what's highlighted in the news is all the bad stuff, but 90%, more than that, 99% of the people you interact with when you travel are really warm-hearted and, and, and fantastic people to engage with. So, um, again, hoping that humanity gets to realize that 
its beauty really lies in its diversity. That was Sandra Sam, research scientist and director of Blue Marble Space Institute of Science and Exobiology branch of the NASA Ames Research Center. Today we got into his nonlinear path through astrobiology, why and where he travels, and the research projects he's been getting into. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.